coming up on today's Film Disruptors. And I felt passionately after the way we had done it at Ardman that we needed a much more integrated approach from the very beginning so that it's more like the singular studio that a Disney or a, a Pixar have. You know, it's all one movie. The producers producing from end to end, the artists intermingle from the beginning. And that was what I pitched to Deneg. Hello everyone and welcome to Film Disruptors. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the podcast where I share insights and strategies from the leaders who are shaping the future of film. And in this episode, I'm very happy to welcome Sarah Smith to the show. Sarah is CEO of Locksmith Animation, which she launched with Julie Lockhart in 2014 with backing from Liz Murdoch, no less. Described as the UK's only high-end feature animation studio dedicated to making films for a global family audience, Locksmith recently backed this statement up by signing a major multi-year output deal with 20th Century Fox. Sarah shares how she built the business and moved into this entrepreneurial space from her career as a multi-award winning director and writer. She also talks about her time as a senior executive at Aardman Studios, where she was not only instrumental in securing a game-changing Sony Pictures deal, but for who she also directed the wonderful family classic, Arthur Christmas. So we cover a lot of ground in this conversation from Time's Up, Locksmith being a female-led global entertainment studio, of course, new tech innovation, in the animation space and Sarah also shares some very powerful and practical tips on navigating the Hollywood machine. If you are enjoying the show or just want to find out more there are a couple of ways to stay in touch. Firstly you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Just click subscribe on iTunes to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop onto your device, your desktop, however you like to listen to your podcasts. Also, you can sign up for updates at the home of Film Disruptors. That's www.alexstoltz.com. Just enter your email to receive all the latest Film Disruptors news and episodes straight to your inbox. And this is also where you can access previous episodes, find out more about our featured guests, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Now I'm going to hand you over to Sarah Smith. And I started the show by asking Sarah about her experience at Ardman. I, I ended up at Ardman. I actually started my career in comedy and radio and then television comedy. I always kind of intended from a young age to make proper serious grown-up films and drama. <laughs> actually, not even film, drama and theatre. That was my plan. Um, but right from university, I got sucked into doing comedy and review. I, I did shows with Armando Iannucci when I was at university. And... Um, Armando ended up in radio comedy and I kind of ended up following in his footsteps a couple of years later. And so I worked in radio and television at the BBC and then in the independent sector. And then one day I was directing a very cold 
TV series <laughs> set in an ice rink. Um, and it was supposed to be in a kind of faded glory ice rink, which it was. It was up north. And oh, my goodness, it was such a hard show to direct. It was like a kind of worry, anxiety dream of standing on an ice rink with like 25 children dressed in penguin costumes who couldn't hear you because it was so echoey. <laughs> and there were like rats and the ice rink was melting. And I got a call from Ardman, which I took in the urine-soaked a changing room of the boys hockey team and they said would you like to come and and head up development and that I'd never been a developer I've always developed the series uh, the tv and radio that I'd made but I'd always been the producer director writer kind of one of those roles so I was kind of in two minds and in the end I said to Ardman but you know Ardman's a national treasure I love what they do and in the end I said well look I'll come for six months and I was hoping that I would build a relationship with them and then be able to maybe do some freelance work with them thereafter just on project development. But I immediately got sucked into the amazing, crazy world of Ardman. Within a week and a half of joining, I was whisked off to LA to a big kind of power with Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, who's a kind of, you know, one of the Hollywood legends in his, in a way. And there I was, I'd never been to LA before. And there I was in this, you know, boardroom of like 25 people all opinionating about uh, flushed away as it was at the time. And um, Arben was coming out of the DreamWorks relationship and basically wanted to build a new slate of projects. So I stayed for a year and put together a new slate as their head of head of feature development, which included Arthur Christmas. I also bought the book for the Pirates in an Adventure with Scientist. And I had a couple of other things on my slate. And at the end of that time, the company was free to pitch the slate. And I then found myself being responsible for pitching and Ardman being Ardman, so much of the British film industry can be, or used to be certainly not so much now, but it was then very much, you know, in terms of the big players, you got to meet, you know, the assistant of the nanny of the development executive's brother-in-law, you know, and Ardman kind of have always punched above their weight, I guess, because they've turned up for so many Academy Awards and walked away with them. And so we had the chairman of Universal flew in to Filton Airport and came out to Aztec West Business Park to have us pitch, you know, and or the owner of Pathé and the chairman of Sony Pictures, you know, and there they all were coming out (laughs) to Aztec West. And I had never seen anyone pitch a movie before. I remember saying to people, what do people say? What do they do? (laughs) (laughs) So I did my best kind of song and dance. I think I realized subsequently that really I should have been like a car salesman, that that is actually probably the thing that I do best is selling. (laughs) And so I pitched these movies and Sony bought it, hook, line and sinker and said, yes, we want to do a deal. And they bought the slate. And at that point, Pete Lord decided, so that was a year in, and he decided he would like to step aside from his other duties to direct the Pirates movie. And they asked me to stay on as head of um, creative director of the feature department. And I kind of thought, wow, there aren't any jobs like that in the UK. You know, an actual producing studio and to be creative director of that, I kind of couldn't say no. So I carried on doing that for the next couple of years. But during that time, I was also writing Arthur Christmas with Pete. And at the end of that time, I started as the director. So I guess I was there for about two, three years. And then Arthur took three years to make, as it does, animated movies from green light to delivery, three whole years. 
some of it in Bristol, but half of it in Los Angeles. So that was the big crunch for me was that at that time, there was no way really to make a CG animated movie of a high-end quality here in the UK. And we looked around Europe, there wasn't really anyone doing it at that time. And it sort of became obvious, well, we did all the front end in Bristol, design, animatics, you know, that we would actually have to go out to LA to Sony Imageworks for shot production, which we did halfway through. Uh, I went out with a six month old baby, that was insane. I got pregnant the month the film was greenlit, so that was mental. And we went out to LA, about 15 or so of my team, I think, came with me for the second half of production. Um, And we were there for 18 months. So, and then I came back to the UK, you know, wanting basically with the ambition for Locksmith. Yeah, yeah. And, well, tell me, tell me then about how how that came about, because you founded Locksmith with... Um, with one of your other <clears throat> colleagues at Ardman. With Julie, yes. Yeah. So, mm. so coming, so at the end of making Arthur Christmas, um, I then had a one and a half year old daughter, two year old, two and a half year old daughter, um, and I, I, I didn't love LA as a place to live long term and raise a child. I wanted to come back close to my family, and I also love the creative community of London. Um, LA is difficult because. It's so much, there is so much kind of inherent judgment of everybody's place on the ladder of success and status. And I think for most creative people, that just engenders the form of insecurity that you're most prone to, you know. (laughs) And what I've always loved about London was I think, you know, the community in the UK slightly feels like the underdog. It's all, we've already kind of lost to Hollywood before we start. And therefore, people are so much in it for the work and the relationships. And I really love that community. So I came back to the UK and thought, but I had along the way, animation was such a revelation to me. It pulled together so many things I loved, comedy, but also big movie making and drama and Uh, the visual and the art and the design, the craft of it. There's just so much of it that appealed to me. Plus I'd had a child, you know, and having a kid, suddenly the themes of animated movies and, you know, that's what you start doing with your child as kind of mutual entertainment, but also the fact, the possibility of telling stories for your kids. So I had fallen in love with it and came back to the UK and thought, well, why don't we have that studio here? You know, why do we not have a Pixar DreamWorks? We have Aardman, but Aardman is a very particular thing. And what we haven't really had is the big mainstream CG animation studio. And at the same time, Illumination were producing Despicable Me, etc. in France. And there was a very good argument to be made for why we should have such a thing in London. Obviously, the secret reason was I wanted to create my own job. (laughs) (laughs) And I also, I wanted to bring together, I wanted to create the kind of place that I want to work in, you know, with like-minded people and without bureaucracy over my head and without a corporate structure, you know, that was full of the people I love working with and get to make our movies, you know, that was clearly my personal reason but um i downloaded from barclay's website how to write a business plan (laughs) i'd never seen a business plan in my life and i kept asking people can you just have you got a business plan can you just show me what one looks like (laughs) Uh 
So I downloaded How to Write a Business Plan and I sat in this flat where my daughter was about two and a half at night writing a giant version of an animation business plan. And the kind of, it boiled down to the fact that, you know, the UK has always been brilliant with children's IP. We, We created, you know, stories, The Jungle Book, 101 Dalmatians, How to Train Your Dragon. They all came out of British authors originally. Mm. Plus, we also have most of the key animation talent or a vast, a huge amount of it comes out of Europe. So Disney, Pixar, DreamWorks, Sony are full of French, Italian, Spanish. You know, there's so much talent that comes from Europe. So why not do it here in Europe? We also have the the biggest CG visual effects industry in the world. And I used to say one of the or the second, and now it literally is the biggest. And that's the same technology that you need to make an animated film. Plus we had the tax credit. So there was a very good case to be made for why it should happen here. And along the way, I got in touch with Julie, who I had met at Ardman. She took over producing the Pirates movie after I'd done the first year of development and said, you know, how about it? Do you want to do it? Because I knew that she came from the same kind of stable of thinking. The, the You know, the Ard- Ardman are sort of our background family, and we believe in a lot of the values of Ardman in terms of way, the way they see creative, etc. So I asked Julia, originally I said to her, why don't we become a development company and then we'll sell our ideas? Because that's the bit that people aren't great at. And actually, that is my background. That's something we could do. And then we thought, who are we kidding? If we develop things we love, we're going to want to make them. And so then Julie was still finishing Shaun the Sheep. She had another year and a half to go on that movie because, you know, of how long it takes. So I was kind of walking the streets, networking with everybody. So I went to see everyone that I could think of in the film industry, trading off having done Arthur Christmas, which had done really well in the UK. And people like Tessa Ross at Film 4, who was massively encouraging, David Heyman, Barbara Broccoli, everybody I could think of in the sort of bigger film industry. Jane Wright, formerly from BBC Films, was a massive supporter and said, go for it, really encouraged me to to go for that ambition. And I kind of networked and met people who helped me with the business plan. And we were looking for an investor. And I guess I kind of realised, or so much of this was a learning curve. To start with, we just thought we were looking for some money. And then I kind of began to realise that you don't just need money, you also need people to back you who change your proposition you know they make you something more than you are yourself and along the way it's very difficult to think of anyone in the UK with that kind of big bold vision to do something like this and I I remember going to see um, Ingenious you know Film Phoenix and people and they said your animation plan is one of the best things that we've seen in this area but really the kind of people that back this don't really exist in the UK. This is why we don't have Google and Amazon here because, you know, those big leaps to do a big new project on a sort of global scale, it's just not really the pattern of, of you know, of UK startups. So we had a hit list that was really short of people that we thought might do it. You know, I had like Richard Branson was on my list and people like that. And one of the other people who was on my list was Liz Murdoch. And I knew that Liz had, apart from the fact that she had built a massively successful TV thing and that she had a global outlook, I also knew she had children. And I thought maybe she will understand that what we're selling is not just the idea of a film studio because animation is, you know, you create brands that enter people's lives and homes. 
And sure enough, when I got to meet her, the first thing she said to me was, I absolutely loved Arthur Christmas. I saw it with my kids and uh, it really reminded me of my family. (laughs) And I love that because it kind of, it tells you the power of animated movies to get into people's family lives, whoever they are, and speak to people, you know, across the whole kind of spectrum. That's a, that's and, a, that's a great insight into the, the Murdoch Empire. There you go. I probably shouldn't yeah. have said that. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the fact that they travel and they get into people's family lives through yeah. their children, you know. And so Liz, at that time, it was kind of perfect timing in terms of where she was at and what she was looking to do. And she wanted to basically step in and be our kind of sole founding partner Uh, which she did. And that was massively transformational because not only was she brave enough, you know, to to support it financially, but also her thinking, her ambition, where she sits globally in terms of the respect that she has for the work that she's done. You know, it opened doors for us in a huge way. And I always think, you know, open the door. You, you need to go in at the highest level into the film industry. It's very hard to get taken seriously by working your way up through the development assistance, nannies, dog walker. You know, it's really hard to get actually any purchase that way. But Liz knows the chairman of everything. And so I'm like, you, if you can walk me through the door, you know, I'll do the the car sales pitch after that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. And that's how we yeah. started. That's great. What a great story. And um, well, and and then I guess Liz walked you through some through some doors, and and one of those doors was Fox. And no, in fact, be... no, it didn't. It didn't work like that. Oh, so, okay. And to be fair, you know, yeah. it wasn't. It, it wasn't a kind of. You know, we had a massive plan, and in fact, the first time I went to LA with Liz was like it was still just me because Julie was still on Shaun the Sheep and it was only a few weeks into when we started and I was so nervous because what I had pitched about you know there is a market for high-end animation it's not saturated there are so few studios that can actually do it because it's a big piece of logistics and by the way everyone in our crew you know we've stolen off one of those major companies because it's not a thing you learn on the job you need expertise to grow it and um, I'd said to her you know there are only five or six studios that can make these kind of films they are among the most successful at the box office we don't want to go in small in a kind of low budget european way you know apologizing for ourselves we want to go in and say we'll compete with sony and we want to be able to back that up and i think there is still an appetite for that then i went out to la with her and we went to have meetings with various you know, chairman of things that Liz knew and and also people that I I knew from my history there. And uh, I was slightly terrified in case they all went, no, we're all right for animation. Thank you very much. (laughs) But luckily they all said what I'd said in my business plan, which is, yes, it's a very important thing for us. You know, family, it has a reliability at the box office. Yes, we have an appetite. So at least there was a tick box there. And at the same time, The other thing that I had learned from my time at Aardman is that you have to be very savvy about the LA world and what's changing there. And it changes all the time. And given how long it takes to make an animated movie, you know, things will change three times within the lifetime of one production. So when we first set up, it was clear to me that the most likely taker for animation was Paramount at that time because they had been investing for quite a long time in trying to build their... They had been distributing DreamWorks movies. DreamWorks had gone to Fox. 
Paramount were left with a big opening in their output and they had been trying to home grow their own animated movies and they hadn't managed to make much progress. They only had one thing in production. And so they were really crying out for product. So, you know, the way it always works, again, here's my car sales thing coming in, is you look for the thing that people want and you you present yourself as exactly what they've been looking for. So we went and talked at that time, I think we talked to Sony, and Warner Brothers and Paramount. They were the kind of potential buyers at that stage. And Paramount bit. And so we did an initial deal with Paramount to develop projects. And within the lifetime, even of that development, all of the leadership at Paramount changed. And we then, we had a project ready to go. And they allowed us to take all our projects back again because it was a whole load of different relationships. And at that point, we went to Warners and Fox because then Fox had changed. Before, they had all the DreamWorks movies they'd taken off Paramount and then Universal had bought DreamWorks. So suddenly Fox had openings in their diary and they loved the project that we had and it was greenlit and we moved everything to Fox. So it changes and you have to know that world, know the personalities, the politics of it and be ready to be sort of light on your feet about that. Not easy for an animation studio to be light on our feet. We are anything but. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Film Disruptors with me, Alex Stoltz. And if you want to find out more about any of our guests, catch up on previous episodes or get in touch, you can do that at alexstoltz.com. Describe the sort of the business model and the, uh, you know, and the market that you're 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 working to yeah yeah. So I guess having made Arthur Christmas. The only area of animation, I am such a Johnny-come-lately to animation. I've only been doing it for 10 years, which makes me virtually worth nobody's attention, obviously. But, you know, there are people, real animation people have had 25-year careers. So I'm so much, I'm still seen as live action, even though I've been doing it for 10 years. Um, But, you know, the only, the area of animation that I worked in was high-end features. In other words, by high-end CG features, I mean movies that generally cost over 60 70 million to make you know going up to a pixar movie which is goodness knows somewhere between 150 250 million depends what overheads you add in you know but those are the budget ranges of the major studio output and that was the world that i had stepped into at sony and i knew those people and how that was done and so that was where we wanted to set our hat smaller scale animation is actually very hard partly because it's such a struggle to build a pipeline or a studio for a one-off film um, for like a lower budget thing. And the European distribution, lower budget model, it's a really hard thing. And although the big movies are massively hard as well in another way, they do sort of also have their own momentum and rationale. And my feeling is if we build it once and we can get one movie made, we will actually have people and a pipeline. It's kind of easier to roll on to the next one than it is to scale down, scale up. So our whole thing was go big or go home right from the very beginning. We wanted to exist in high end, uh, which is, you know, the most proven area in terms of box office success. 
to budget, but we wanted to be at the bottom of high end. In other words, we wanted to be the lower, the lower end of the high end budgets. So that was what we were aiming at, but with all of the markers of quality. So our schedules and budget, and I should, I didn't mention as well that the other partner from the beginning was double negative. We wanted a pipeline partner here in London so we could make movies end to end in London, very important creatively. And double negative are, you know, they're a modest company, but they are actually probably the number one visual effects company in the world right now. They have 1,100, 1,200 people here in London. They have sites in Canada and in India. They are hugely successful, run by Matt and Alex, who started the company 20 years ago. And they make extraordinary high-quality imagery. I noticed that every summer blockbuster I saw was basically done by them. Mission Impossible, Ant-Man was all double negative. So I had talked to all of the visual effects companies and I felt that they were the most, um, the best possible partners for us. And they had the ambition to start building um, an animation pipeline, a digital pipeline. So we've been working with them from the very beginning towards that end. So the model was to do all of the, to do the high end metrics of animation. We have, you know, our budgets and our schedules are based on how DreamWorks or Imageworks do a movie and the amount of money the producer would have to make a DreamWorks movie. But we don't have the giant overhead of a big campus and we are also working tax credits. So we're trying to do proper competitive high-end quality, but at the most economic rate possible, the lowest risk number possible, Um, but aimed very much towards the international global market. Does that mean, um, and is this where double negative come in, you know, more outsourcing for the work? Well, we are, I mean, we are do you mean our, us outsourcing to them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for yeah. You, you know, I, I would die before using the word outsourcing. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, the idea of the no, it really it? doesn't. And par- you know, par- partnerships, perhaps. Yeah. Par- well, and even more than that, because yeah. I had worked in that model with Ardman. You know, Ardman had created Arthur Christmas. We, you know, that was our film. We created all the. Uh, creative materials, the script and the, you know, the storyboards and the designs and everything. We didn't have a pipeline of our own, a CG pipeline. And so we did the work with Imageworks. And to some extent, the, the contract at least was like an outsourcing contract. It says, here you go, here's X million dollars now go to make our movie but of course it doesn't work like that at all because the making of an animated movie evolves for three years and the director sits in with that team it's not like a visual effects model where you can put in an order for x number of shots that do this you know it's a a massively evolving thing and sometimes very commonly four or five months before the end of production everyone is looking at reels and screening it to the public and going we need to change the ending you know it's a constantly evolving process and so the idea of just handing over a a wadge of money it would be like having a film crew a live action film crew that you've contracted out your film and yet you're turning up on their set to direct it it's a very kind of weird thing in terms of how it works creatively and I felt passionately after the way we had done it at Ardman that we needed a much more integrated approach from the very beginning so that it's more like the singular studio that a Disney or a a Pixar have you know it's all one movie the producers producing from end to end the artists intermingle from the beginning and that was what I pitched to Deneg and so 
the idea was that we would have this sort of symbiotic relationship as if it was our own home studio, but we would have a business separation. In other words, they're responsible for the pipeline and the people you know, in between movies, we're not carrying that because that's why the huge overhead gets, uh, you know, gets added. If you if you have 300 people who make your movies and there's a delay between one movie and another, that's a huge bill that goes on the next movie. So we wanted the business separation that meant that we didn't have to carry all of that overhead and that risk, but the creative integration. And so that was also the reason why we asked Dineg if they would like to become minority shareholders in the company so that they would share in our success and that also we had a kind of under the bonnet relationship where we could see each other's planning finances you know we could share the budget and have a really open relationship as if we were one studio so that was the idea never been done before I don't think quite like that as a model and it was kind of an idea I came up with after having reflected a lot about what's the best way to to go about it Wow. Uh, tell me a bit about the global market for animation because you said that's that's your focus is is a global focus. Yeah. Where, where are you kind of are you looking at different territories specifically different uh, cultural kind of you know um, yeah tr- trends or anything like that to when you when you're developing no, material. I mean no our material I, I think we are very aware of wanting to speak to the global audience not to be particularly British having so our first movie is set in small town America because the story is kind of asking to be set in that iconic kind of ET world our second movie is set in London because we wanted a cool edgy city so in terms of location etc it will be wherever I mean one of the invidious things about the film industry certainly of you know maybe up to now is that the language of movies that people recognize as like that's where movies happen generally is America you know we know all of the tropes of American society and different areas and accents and actors and so on I think that is changing particularly with streaming with video on demand you know with streaming services there's more content being made in different parts of the world but but right now a lot of the iconics of film are still in the US and therefore some of our stuff will be set in those worlds you know our third movie is set in a city that is sort of in my head Manhattan because it's kind of the most famous global city in the world in a way and we wanted an international story but it so it it will be case by case but we very much want to speak to the global market um, because there is a global market and in terms of the economics of animation if you'd asked me three or four years ago I could have rattled off masses of statistics about how well it did I haven't had to do that presentation for a while but you know there are a number of movies that have broken the billion mark in the last couple of years. And I think probably the most interesting metric is to see how many animated movies make it into the top 20 global box office every year. And it is generally around five. And when you consider that there are only maybe seven or eight of those movies made, and very often there are two or three in the top five grossing box office every year. So it's a kind of extraordinarily healthy, solid bit of an otherwise quite turbulent film market. And I think the reason for that is that 
I think as an adult, you're kind of in two minds as to whether you want to go to the cinema or slob on your sofa and watch it on Netflix. But with your children, you're already so guilty about the amount of the time they spend on the sofa that going to the cinema is a family outing. It's one of the things that you do with your kids. You you make the effort to go out to a movie. Yeah, and the the standard which you you have helped to to set and obviously you know people like pixar have as well is so high i mean the storytelling in that space uh tends to be yeah just just you know very very strong and i suppose people i know that's scary isn't it (laughs) (laughs) no no pressure no pressure Uh, but then you know maybe that's one of the other reasons why i fell in love with it because you feel that there is it's possible and that it's that the market wants for you to make a classic that will last through time and you know that's not always the case a lot of movies are fairly kind of come and go disposable and certainly for me Arthur Christmas has been a lovely thing to have put out in the world because years after every Christmas I start getting people saying oh I just watched Arthur Christmas again you know it's a lovely thing but animated movies generally are not as disposable, or at least the great ones are not disposable. They're a kind of iconic part of kids' childhood. And that's that that rewards the insane level of effort to make one. Hmm. Is the technology you're using uh, changing at all? I mean, this show, we, we do focus a bit on, on the tech side and disruption in that space yeah we've been doing had a few things recently people talking about game engine yeah. uh tools to, yeah. to to be able to realize stuff is that is that something you're kind of yeah you're million million yeah. percent so yeah. one of the one of the first things that i did when i started the company first was to get together a whole group of creatives writers directors story people people i had worked with a lot of them and knew and other people who um Yeah, some people I'd worked with for years and years and some people I'd met in my animation journey to talk about, you know, in a disruptory way, what are the kind of movies that don't get made? What do we want to see that aren't be the stories that aren't being told? And I think what we felt very strongly, I'm I'm actually answering a slightly different question, but I'll come to your other one in a minute. But I think I think what we felt was that um, I well, and I certainly felt this as a parent at the time was that the animated movies being made did not really speak to the children in the audience directly. They tended to exist in a fairly slightly retro middle class kind of family world where mostly it was nuclear families. And, you know, and the kid sitting beside you spends a lot of time on YouTube has probably seen The Matrix, you know, has, lives in a city. And those kind of lives very much comes from unconventional and potentially broken families or whatever. And those sort of realities, you know, the movies didn't talk to kids like that. And I remember taking my daughter to see, this is like, I'm treading on sacred ground here, because my daughter was like the number one fan of Monsters, Inc., massive classic kids film, watched it a million times. When I took her to see Monsters University, it didn't make any impact on her because it was such a sort of American college movie and it didn't talk to a six-year-old British girl. And I felt that there were movies to be made that really treated children, you know, that were very respectful to the intelligence of kids in the way that books are, by the way. Books are very sophisticated children's books. 
and that actually spoke to the kids and the, their lives, you know, while also being funny, comedic, entertaining, all the things that you want animation to be. So that was the kind of movie we wanted to make. And then the second thing I did was um, I got together with Alex McDowell. I don't know if you know Alex. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a guest on the podcast, actually. Go. So Alex okay. is a genius British designer. He, his latest job is designing the future, apparently. Mm. Yeah, I know. He's <laughs> got I amazing, love Alex. amazing he title. Had, yeah. I, I tried to, I chased him when I first was looking for production designer for Arthur Christmas but he was at DreamWorks at the time but I really liked him and we got on well and we kept in touch and he came in and did a little consulting for me on, on Arthur Christmas later on and um he was hosting, a, he hosted a, a Stranded FMX and he and I did it together, really talking about the animation fu- studio of the future. If you could get on a spaceship and get off, what would it look like in 20 years time? And it was really about making more and more accessible, user-friendly tools for filmmaker brains, rather than breaking the process down into I do modeling, I do this, I do that, you know, which is how it generally works, that you try and find those sort of all-round filmmaker types and you give them very, very easy to use tools so that what they can do is express their creativity rather than do a technical job. So uh, we had loads of people there. We had visual effects supervisors and CTOs and directors and heads of story all talking about ways of working. And I think the primary objective being how can you integrate the process instead of it being broken up in a linear way, one followed by another, followed by another, how can you be working way into 3D camera and modeling while you're still in story? You know, how can you like pull those two halves together so that instead of just working on paper in 2D, you're actually in your medium much earlier, but it's still throwaway. So So to that extent, one of the people I met a year or so into the company walked in my door for a cup of tea visiting from Australia was David Pierce, who was the cinematographer on Happy Feet and and was the co-director with George Miller on the second Happy Feet. And he'd also uh, run a previous company and he'd helped to build uh, the studio Dr. D in Australia. And we were introduced by a mutual friend. And anyway, the cup of tea turned into like two hours of like, yes, and another thing. And uh, he moved his family to London to help set up some of our front end tools. Um, and exactly using game engines and etc. And I love those people. So we've also gathered around us. There's Doug Eichler has just joined us as our CTO. Doug is actually comes from. Um, he's a, a visual effects supervisor. He was the first digital artist at DreamWorks when they were still in 2D. <laughs> and he went there at the very very beginning. And he also then went to Sony as. The fir- to make the first movie that Imageworks did, the first animated movie they did when they were still a visual effects house. So he was hired by Sandy and Penny at, at um, Sony to come in and lead that team as they progressed from being a visual effects house to being um, an animation studio. And I met him because he was the visual effects um Soup on Arthur Christmas, but he then went on to Disney Toons, where he was building a an artist friendly friendly front end pipeline to do very early look dev as well. So we just hired him because he also is very pioneering in thinking about ways of working. And literally last week, I saw our lovely art director Justin Hutchinson standing in a VR helmet, modelling in midair, as it appears. And within an hour or so, he has modelled the most fabulous, gorgeous 
development set for our second movie just with his hands. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. So he's just about to hold a seminar for us all because everyone's like, give it me, put the helmet on. I want to know how to do that. That looks awesome. So it's it's evolving very fast. And I think, you know, the way that you keep up with it is you bring in the curious minds who are just looking for the easiest tool to express their work, to do their work. You know, they what they want to do is the work. It's the vision is that they it, they have is what drives them. They're not driven by the tool. They're driven by what they're trying to achieve. And those are the people who move you forward technically. You're listening to Film Disruptors. And to receive new episodes straight away, subscribe on iTunes or sign up at alexstoltz.com. Obviously, the, the the story of Locksmith uh, with yourself, Julie, Liz, it's a it's a very positive story for, for women in, in leadership. You know, women in leadership and w- women in film and animation. You know, in a year which has been very, uh, you know, formative in that uh, in that sort of space. Um, does that? Uh, well, I don't know, I, what, what's my question? <laughs> is that something which uh, I guess you guess you're conscious of? Is are there the same kind of challenges in animation as has been identified in film? Do you think yeah. progress is being made? Well, I mean, you know, there was a lot of talk about you know at Pixar and elsewhere about the boys' club thing, and. I would honestly say that was absolutely my experience in LA. It was a little bit of a shock to the system for me. I mean, the team that I had at Ardman in Bristol were not like that at all. They're a fantastic group of people, very mixed, family people, different sexes, quite quite a predominantly male world in the CG world, but not in a cultural way, if you know what I mean. Um, definitely at Sony, I encountered elements from a very different kind of culture that was a bit of a shock and you know it I was on a massive learning curve it was hard because I was also there with a six-month-old baby on my own you know it was a really big thing to be doing making a movie an animated movie for the first time making loads of mistakes learning things etc but at the same time you know being a female director very unusual thing in that environment and also from live action it was pretty, I was, there were some elements that cut me no quarter in that area. Do you know, it was a hard thing. I was not going to win, but, but not by not means, by no means all. There were many, many, many people in that team who were massively supportive and helped the movie to success. And it wouldn't be what it is if I hadn't had them. So, but I did feel it. I did come up against it and it was just surprising because it's just not a thing that you ever meet in this country. I'd never come across that feeling, that vibe in London or the UK at all in my TV career. So I just was kind of a bit eye-opened by, wow, that that just feels different. So, um, but coming back here, of course, one of the joys of building your own studio is you hire the people that you love, you know, and our studio, it, it we are ridiculously female run in that there's Liz, there's me, there's Julie, um, But, you know, that's not a conscious, hey, look at us choice. That's just how it is. Those are the people that, you know, we happen to have come together. And it just isn't a thing, the kind of Me Too thing. It's just not a thing. It's a mixed community of lovely people. Most of them I think of as parents and younger people. You know, I don't think of them as 
men, you know, it doesn't have a men, women vibe. Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's just, I mean, most workplaces don't, do they really? Or at least mm. not, they don't inevitably. They don't inevitably, do they? It's a group of people who like each other rather than anything else. And I do resist. I mean, I don't resist the, the, the female director thing. Of course, I am that, you know, and I actually have a, a girl movie that we're making as our second movie. And I have really wanted to put a female director in charge of it. But the difficulty is, is finding someone experienced because there are literally only about five women who've ever made major high end animated movies. Um, and I'm one of them. So, you know, that is a really difficult thing to cast. And, you know, I super regret that. I really wish there was a bigger pool to pull from. And you have to then make the decision. Do you take someone with less experience, but, you know, but it's a female director or do I need to go for someone who's made it before? Now, for a, for a new company, that's a hard call. Um, but, you know, I, I do actually slightly resist the kind of women in animation thing, like the women in animation panels, partly because there's slightly a danger in my mind that it becomes a, well, they're over there being women in animation. I would much rather be on a director's panel. Do you know what I mean? Or an animation panel. I want to be a director in the world. I don't want to be a female director in the world. Because <laughs> I think it's more powerful if you can just be part of the mainstream industry rather than with your own association, you know? Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, and I know there's a, 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 I've been told there's a scheduled fire alarm at uh, Locksmith <laughs> in five minutes. I know, this legendary fire alarm. Yeah, I have no so, idea. Uh, so maybe, maybe I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens in five minutes' time. But um, I, I'd like to just finally ask, Sarah, uh, your advice for emerging storytellers, someone who is coming into uh, this, this space, she wants to tell a story, where should they start? Well, I feel there's no wrong place to start if you're working within the field of, you know, story and entertainment generally. I came a very unconventional route to this from, I started in radio comedy, but every single thing I did taught me something, which eventually came together, you know, in my 40s to make an animated movie. So I learned comedy, I'd learned editing, I'd learned, you know, storytelling, I'd learned camera. I learned so many things from all different people and different kinds of work. And I, I, I hit a kind of crisis in my 30s thinking, is any of this what I really want to do? This is when I'd had a very successful TV comedy career. And I was like, but I'm just doing other people's stuff. Is this really me? And, you know, my good friend Pete Bainham said to me, but everything you've done, you've learned from. And so nothing is wasted. And he was totally right because I wouldn't have been able to do what I do now 20 years ago. So my thing is, I think a lot of younger people wait for the perfect opportunity. They're waiting for some kind of storytelling based role in an animation company. It probably isn't going to happen. So just get find your way into the industry anywhere. And my thing is that good people who really knock it out of the park in any role that you give them will progress through to where they want to be because you want to hang on to them. So somebody that comes in and is the best runner I've ever had will end up in five or 10 years being in the area that they want to be. I mean, it takes a while. And I think there is, there's been a little, sometimes we overemphasize for younger people, the idea of what do you really want to do and focus on that. Just work, be in the world and work and do it really well and work really hard 
and you will find your way. You will be spotted. Coming in, sometimes I've, I've had interns who've come in and they want to show you that they're better than this. In other words, I'm making a cup of tea, but I'm actually a bit smarter than that. So, you know, now the person that makes me the best bloody cup of tea and is there standing by, do you want a cup of tea? You're like, they're good. They're smart. And they're also going, can I do something else? What else can I help you with? Those people are the people that make it in the end. And just be around the creative industries and work your way towards the area. And meanwhile, if you want to be a writer, just write, write a lot at home, do different things, but try and work in any environment in which you can see writing turn into product, script to screen, whether it be sketch show comedy for, you know, channel three or anything you like, just find a way to see stuff that will get made. So you understand what happens when it leaves the page and ends up on screen. Cause that, that's the hard thing in animation. A lot of people become the director of an animated movie. They've made a short film that's five minutes long. I have no idea how they do it because for me, I'm using my giant filing cabinet of anything I've ever written, cut together, seen onto screen. And I had done hours and hours and hours of TV comedy before I did it. So building up hours of stuff that hits the screen wherever it is is incredibly useful so that was sarah smith in conversation in december 2018 if you want to find out more about any of the guests on this show, listen to other episodes or get in touch, you can do all of this at alexstoltz.com. And if you are enjoying Film Disruptors, please subscribe on iTunes. And if you could leave a review too, that would be very much appreciated. So that's it for this episode. Just like to say thank you again for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon. As anyone listening to this show for a while will know, the business of storytelling is something I'm personally very passionate about. And when I'm not interviewing film disruptors, I love applying this passion and using my expertise to help independent storytellers and filmmakers accomplish their goals and get stories made and seen. I do this by working with storytellers intensively or over a longer period to develop the project and strategy for maximum finance, distribution and commercial impact. If you are a filmmaker or storyteller and would like to find out more about how I can help your project, I'd love to hear from you. Please go to alexstoltz.com or just drop me an email at alex at alexstoltz.com. Alex